Good morning, church. And thank you, uh, worship team, for leading us in the presence of the Lord. Um, Amen. Amen. Well, what do the following have in common? Okay. They all have something in common. Okay. Selecting a surgeon, finding a car mechanic, deciding on a financial broker, walking across a frozen lake, driving to Asheville, getting on an airplane, and Christianity. What do they have, all have in common? Faith, you got it, that's right. <laughs> you know, when you think about it, almost every aspect of our life here on this planet involves faith. Your faith is not just some super spiritual thing. Uh, it's not brainless activity. Faith is not the opposite of knowledge. It's not the enemy of reason. Faith is not some blind leap uh, into the dark. Faith always involves three things. And I think it was Martin Luther who, uh, who wrote on this um, first, or one, at least one of the ones who did. Uh, but faith involves three things. It involves understanding, conviction, and commitment. Understanding, conviction, and commitment. Uh, and, and that without knowing everything. That's the point. We, we don't see everything. So if you need, a, let's say, a knee surgeon, um, knee surgery, well, you start with understanding, right? Who are the best surgeons around? Then you become uh, convinced uh, that Dr. X is best for you, uh, but how do you really know? You know uh, he hasn't operated on you, but with what you know, you know, maybe others have had success with this doctor, so you become convinced, and so you finally commit to him. You lay yourself out on the table and let him cut. Well, that is faith, okay? The, the aspects of faith, and there's hardly any area of our life uh, on this planet, driving, flying, financing, picking a restaurant, where faith is not operative. But Christian faith is different. How? Well, this is what Hebrews 11 unfolds. Let's let's jump in. Hebrews 11, beginning at verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was found because God had taken him. He was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household, By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Well, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian 
um, is not that Christians have faith and non-Christians do not. No, we all, all people are people of faith. The difference is where we put our faith, okay? The object of our faith. Um, for the non-Christian, the object of faith is, it tends to be self, uh, power, money, fame, intelligence, human ability. And for the Christian, the object of faith shifts outside of self to God and his promises, to who God is, his character, and the promises that he's made. Almost 20 people are mentioned in Hebrews 11 and many more by general reference. And what marks them as different from the world is the object of their faith, God and his promises. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now that actually could apply to anything. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, you hope for some outcome, and the conviction of things that you don't see, but you're convicted, convinced it's, it's going to happen. But for the Christian, and in the book of Hebrews, it, it's all focused around God and his promises. What are the things hoped for? Well, these are what God has promised us, especially in Jesus. And these are not things that we have fully seen, are we? Or, or have entered into fully, you know? Uh, salvation, eternal life, provision, the forgiveness of sins, God's presence, and ultimately the coming of Jesus. But you see, it's God, not self, who's the object of that faith. In Hebrews 11, our, our writer is encouraging Christians not to bail out on Jesus, and so go back to Judaism and, and to the law, whether they would go back for safety's sake, you know, for protection against persecution, or, or maybe they just thought, well, it, it, can't be, it can't be this simple. We've still got to do something, you know, for our salvation. I got to offer sacrifices. But here's the argument of the book of Hebrews, okay? Here, here's the book summed up. It's in chapter 10, verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these sins, there's no longer any offering for sin. Where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin, okay? God looks at Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, the offering of himself for our sins, and God now accepts nothing but that offering, but that sacrifice, nothing. It's all Jesus. He's the better priest, the better sacrifice, the better covenant. God is only pleased with Jesus and what he has accomplished for us. Okay, this is the argument of Hebrews. Well, the only way then to connect with Jesus is by what? Working really hard? <laughs> no, by faith. Certainly, it's not going back to Judaism, going back to the law. No, it's by faith in the promised one of God. And we're not saved by the strength of our faith. If we just stir up enough faith, you know, then we'll be saved. Um, no, we're saved by the truth of our faith. Jesus, you know, if I'm tumbling down a hill and, and I grab a branch, um, it's the strength of that branch that saves me. I mean, I can have all the strength in the world. But if that branch gives way, I'm a goner. I simply grab hold. So when we grab hold of Jesus, we're united, what, to his strength. He's the object of our faith and of our salvation. He's what we cling to for life. And in a way, it, it really has always been this way, even in the Old Testament. 
This is what the author of Hebrews has been saying over and over again. You know, when it comes down to faith, it's, it's all centered on Jesus, the promised one. All these Old Testament saints, they were simply looking to the promised one who, was, who would come. You know, the, the delightful irony here in, uh, in Hebrews 11, when, the, you know, when you... If you're thinking of somebody here, you know, a Jewish Christian here, but they're thinking, ah, I'm going to bail out on Jesus. I'm going to go back to Judaism. I'm going to go back to the law. Um, and I'm going to take my stand among the, the greats of, of the faith. You know, Abraham, Moses, David. Well, here's the ironic reality. Those guys aren't there anymore. <laughs> they, they are not standing in the halls of Judaism. They're with Jesus. By faith, they were looking forward to the promised one of God. And so to go back to Judaism is to go back to an empty building. None of the greats are there. They're with Jesus, the object of their faith. Well, what's the object of your faith? We, we all live by faith in something. But for right standing with God, where, where have you located your faith? Is it in yourself? Is it in trying harder? Maybe it's, you know, feeling really bad about yourself <laughs> or living a moral life, having the right theology or, or really putting in those works of service or giving more in the offering plate. I mean, those are good things. But if these are the object, the ground of, of our faith, they are branches that will break. Let me change the, the metaphor here um, let, let's say we decide to fly to England um, nonstop from Asheville. And we went to the airport, and there is a Cessna Skyhawk. I don't know if it's up there. Oh, good. Yeah, there it is. And, uh, and I said, get in. I have faith that it can get us across the pond. I even brought an extra gallon of gas just in case. And one of our deacons. You know how great these deacons are? We have awesome deacons. They're great people. They're such servants. Well, one of our deacons just finished reading a book on how to fly and has agreed to fly us there. Now, would any of you get in? No. No. No matter how much faith I had in the plane and in my plan, it wouldn't get us there because it doesn't have the capability. The object of my faith is inadequate. See, the object of our faith is absolutely critical. If my faith is in myself and my plan, that is unstable. It's inadequate, specifically when it comes to salvation, right? Standing before God, forgiveness of sins. Human feelings, human strength, works of law, or anything of this world is a bad bet. They cannot get us over the pond so to speak, only Jesus can. The object of our faith is, is got to be God and his promises, specifically Jesus Christ. But faith in Jesus is not blind faith. Sometimes Christians are accused of, oh, you just have blind faith. Sometimes we're accused of not thinking, we leave our brains at the door. But actually, faith calls us to think. And so consider, second, uh, the understanding of faith. 
Verse three, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith we understand. Okay, we use our brains, we think, we reason it out. Now, we talk about the the creation of the world, you know, we got a problem because none of us was there, right? (laughs) None of us was around when the universe came into being. We're talking about things not seen. And by faith, we understand that God called everything into existence. But again, how do we prove that? Is there evidence? Now, I'm not going in the direction of faith versus science, as though the two were, were in competition. They're not. And in fact, I'm going toward the use of our brains and, and reasoning things out. You know, since no one was there at the beginning, when it comes to the origin of the universe, everybody begins with a premise a theory of how it came into being. And for Christians, we go there with our, with our understanding, with our brains, with our reason, and we ask questions. Specifically, we ask the question, you know, what makes better sense of the world as we know it? And, and think about this world. It is, it is a world of order and purpose. There's a lot of evil. There's chaos. Absolutely. And we don't We don't have full answers for, you know, the problem of evil. Nobody does. But when we look at the world of order and purpose, and that there is is a deep sense of right and wrong, love, justice, does a naturalistic, godless universe that somehow exploded into being, does that make better sense of the world that we know? Or that there's a creative, wise, and loving God who made everything. At the end of of the day, we can't prove it. None of us can. But by a faith, a reasonable faith, we we can trust that there is a creator God. I mean, just take the issue of justice. If there is no God, if there is no moral agent who determines right and wrong, you know, we're all just chemicals and and natural selection, well, then who are you to tell me murder is wrong, that genocide is wrong, that racism is wrong, that stealing is wrong, that Nazism was bad for the world? By whose standards? Yours? A multitude of people? Well, they may all be wrong. They must just be, you know, Western. If there is no God, there are no absolutes for justice. It's all power and might. But if there is a God, see, that better explains, it has better explanatory power for explaining why if somebody steals from me, I feel it deeply. This is the understanding of faith. But that leads somewhere It leads to the conviction of faith, where we draw a line. Uh, And and this is, again, this is true in all of life. Um, Again, you want to find a surgeon, so you you think, you ask around, you read up on doctor's uh, doctor's specialties, you maybe interview the doctor, but then there comes the conviction. You know, this is the one. And so you commit to let that doctor operate. Well, when it comes to Jesus, you know, by faith, we look, we look at his birth, we look at his life, teachings, his death, his resurrection. What a savior. There's no one like him. Well, faith then leads to conviction and commitment that he is the one that we trust. You know, this whole faith process of, 
of understanding that leads to conviction and commitment. It's really what unfolds in the rest of Hebrews 11. Uh, we get one story after another um, of those who understand the promises of God, who believe them by faith, believe him, and then by faith commit themselves to him. You know, they, they draw the line. They're shaped and redirected by God. This God who promises, this God who is faithful. And the, the, you know, these folks in Hebrews, they, they don't see with their eyes. They see with their ears. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Hebrews, or Romans 10, 17. They heard God's promises, and their lives were then shaped by those promises because they considered him faithful who had promised. So look, look at the first three of these uh, from our passage. Uh, first up is Abel. Uh, now, Cain and Abel were sons of Adam and Eve. Cain killed his brother Abel out of jealousy because God said Abel's sacrifice was, was more acceptable uh, than Cain's. Now, you know, Cain was a worker of the field, of the ground, uh, and he brought to God an offering of fruits and vegetables. Abel was a keeper of sheep, and he took of the firstborn from his flocks and he offered to God animal sacrifices. And God said that was more acceptable than Cain's fruit and vegetable offerings. Well, what did Abel understand by faith and so commit to? Well, back in the garden, um, when Adam and Eve had sinned, God made a promise. And the promise was that there was, there was a future coming Messiah, a savior. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Okay, so there's, he's, he's knowledgeable. There's, God's going to do something. He has not abandoned us. He's not just left us in the world. He is coming to rescue us, save us. How's he going to do that? Well, there's something else that happened in the garden. Before kicking Adam and Eve out, God clothed the man and the woman. And with what? Do you remember? It was with animal skins. In other words, blood had to be shed in order to clothe naked humanity. Well, by faith, Abel, again, he's understanding, he's thinking this through, and he's got this great hope, the promise of God, that God's going to bring salvation, and somehow it's going to have to happen, this covering is going to happen by blood. And so faith convinced him to offer a better sacrifice. And now... An even better sacrifice has come, Jesus, by whose blood our sins are covered and we are rescued. Enoch is next up. Enoch lived 365 years. He walked with God and then he was not because God took him. Enoch did not die. God brought him home to himself. Well, how did that happen? By faith. Faith is what pleased God, verse 5. You know, think about that. Works do not please God. <clears throat> Works do not draw us near to God. Works do not impress God. Faith does. Enoch exemplifies verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, God. For everyone who would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
I know you've, uh, you've probably heard somebody say, uh, I hear this, um, somebody will say, well, you know, I, it, it, I believe God exists. It's true for me. God's true for me. Uh, but it may not be, he may not be true for, for you. But to believe in a, in a God on the foundation of, you know, true for me has actually shifted the ground from God to self. And that is faulty faith. What will I believe when I don't feel God's presence and there will be plenty of days I do not? The question is not, is it true for you, but is it true, period? God exists, period, whether I feel it or not. That was Enoch's faith. But <laughs> it was not just that God exists, period. He also believed the kind of God God is exists. And this is the second half of that verse, a God who rewards those who seek him. That is a delightful truth, is it not? God is a giving God. He's a rewarding God. He has good things for us. That's the kind of God he is. So a God who gives good things exists, period. This is what Enoch believed. And this is what he committed his life to by faith and the reward. You know, what was the reward for? Was it for what Enoch had done? <laughs> no, it was for his faith. He was rewarded for his faith and the reward is God himself. That's exactly what Enoch got home forever with the Lord. Well, this is the reward of our faith as well. We get Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. We don't have to work harder, sacrifice more, get more holy in some way. It's all about Jesus resting, trusting him, the promised one of God. He's taken away our sin by the sacrifice of himself. He's opened the way into the presence of God. We walk with God through Jesus. And someday by Jesus, God will take us home. Noah, last up in our passage. Noah understood the promise of God. God was going to destroy the earth with a flood. But God was going to save Noah and his family through an ark. Um, <laughs> talk about things not seen. <laughs> Noah had never seen a flood. Nobody had. And who had ever seen a, an ark? But by faith... He was convinced of who God is and the promise of God, and he understood that, and that led him then to conviction and commitment to build the ark. And by this, very interesting, Hebrews tells us he condemned the world. What does that mean? Noah lived in days when God was, was absolutely weightless in the culture. More and more very much like our days. God was of no consequence. People just went and did whatever they wanted. But not Noah. He lived with a vision of God and a trust in the promises of God, and he, he let his life be shaped by that. And so that was the message, really, of, of condemnation to the world. You have blown it, world. 
There is a God. And he is coming and he will judge. But there is a way of salvation. And so Noah became the heir of righteousness, that is right standing, favor with God, that comes by faith. If somebody asked you, how can, how can I live a life that pleases God? What would you say? You know, we're told that these folks of old, these, these uh, saints of old were commended by God. We're told four times this word commended is used and, and please, pleasing, pleasing God is used twice in this passage. So what would you say to somebody? How, how can I please God? And our temptation might be to say, well, get busy for God. Do, do more, do better. And God will be pleased with you. Do you, do you remember what God declared publicly over Jesus at his baptism? The Father's voice boomed from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And that was before Jesus had done anything. How can we please God? It's not by getting busy for God to somehow earn or present a resume to God. It's by faith in the promised one. See, faith is all about relationship with God. That's what Jesus had with the Father. And that's what we now have with with God as well through Jesus Christ. And in Christ, we too are beloved. We too, God is well pleased with us. Without faith in Jesus, it is impossible to please God. Again, turn that around. With faith in Christ, there is the pleasure of God on our lives. Jesus Christ is the heart and soul of of Christian faith. And faith in him is what pleases God. Well, rest in that. Delight in that, in him, and live out of that relationship with Christ.